You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Leadership for Educational Equity. Hey, Taylor, and hello to all you civic leaders out there listening. Hi, everyone, and hello, Cindy. What have we got going on today? Today's conversation from The Leader's Table is a little bit different than the usual. We're actually featuring an excerpt from a virtual event that was put on by Lee's Spark Leadership Initiative. The conversation focused a lot on racial justice and insights from the panelists' public leadership, and it just was so good that we couldn't not share it. Oh, perfect. I actually didn't get the chance to see it myself, but knowing how awesome the Spark Leadership Program is and all the amazing and diverse leaders it supports, this conversation should be great. And now is your big chance to hear it. I guess so. Wasn't it moderated by a friend of the pod, Dr. John B. King Jr.? That it was. Dr. King served as the U.S. Secretary of Education during President Barack Obama's administration and now serves as the CEO of the Education Trust and board member for Leadership for Educational Equity. And who else is he talking with? Well, for starters, Dr. King is joined by none other than Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey and Representative Hakeem Jeffries from New York. But the conversation opens up to feature questions from Lee members Sharice Davis from the School Board of Cobb County, Georgia, and Arizona State Representative and Minority Leader Reginald Boulding. That is quite the lineup. Let's get it started then. Pull up a seat, everyone. Here's Dr. John B. King Jr. in conversation with Senator Cory Booker and Representative Hakeem Jeffries with an introduction from Lee's Tanya St. Julian. Enjoy. Uh, Good evening, good people. Thank you so much for joining us tonight for the first of a series of Spark Leadership Conversations about supporting diversity in political leadership. I'm Tanya St. Julian, and I'm delighted to host this month's Spark Leadership Conversation in honor of Black History Month. For those of you who are new to this community, SPARC is Leadership for Educational Equities initiative that supports increasing diversity in political leadership. We help members from underrepresented groups run strong winning campaigns by connecting them to a community of people who share their values, people like you. I'll talk more about this at the end of tonight's chat. Leadership for Educational Equity develops leaders to change laws They change laws and policies that prevent all children and their families and their communities from living into their fullest, brightest potential. We are over 45,000 members strong and we're growing. It's been 12 years since the Barack Obama became our first black president. And it's been a little over a month since Madam Vice President Kamala Harris became the first black American first South Asian, and first woman to hold the second highest seat in the country. Their elections represent paradigm-shifting milestones for Black political representation. There are some who say that this reflects that we've reached the pinnacle of Black political leadership. At Lee, we say, give me more. You know what really blows my mind? The fact that there are zero black governors, zero. And only 3% of our Senate is black, despite black people being 13% of the population. 
What does this say about who's speaking up for justice? Research shows that people closest to inequity are the very ones that transform society. And we've seen that. And that's why we at Lee say, give me more. More black leaders to lead with equity and values at the center of their work. At a time when many organizations are signaling their support for black lives and justice for black communities, I'm so proud to work in an organization where we've invested in so many black members running for office. They run for office to make space for black excellence in schools and communities. They run for office to share their black joy and inspire it in their communities. They run for office to share their curiosity about solving problems that are unique to black communities. And they run for office to represent their families and their communities at the places where the laws and policies that we all live by are made. To date, Lee has supported over 135 black candidates with a win rate of 50%. For those of you who are a little politically savvy, that's unheard of. The American national win rate for average first time candidates is around 22%. We're doing double that and we're excited and we're just getting started. Our SPARK initiative is an integral part of this as it works to support underrepresented candidates specifically. Tonight, I'm humbled to be able to host this amazing conversation. And I'm hopeful about how it inspires all of you to engage in the process of electing leaders that reflect all of our needs in this American democratic experiment. Tonight's conversation will be moderated by a personal hero of mine. Secretary John King. Secretary King will engage two living legends currently serving in the highest political offices in our country, US Senator Cory Booker and my Congressman, Hakeem Jeffries from the most thorough borough of Brooklyn. Then Secretary King will lead us into the future with burgeoning leaders, Sharice Davis from Georgia Cobb County and Reginald Bolding Arizona State Representative and Minority Leader. Now a little bit about Secretary King. He served as US Secretary of Education in the Obama administration. And prior to that role, Secretary King carried out the duties of Deputy Secretary overseeing policies and programs related to P to 12 education. English learners, special ed, innovation and agency operations. Dr. King joined the department following his post as New York State Education Commissioner. And currently he's the president and CEO of the Education Trust, a national nonprofit organization that seeks to identify and close educational opportunity and achievement gaps. And he currently serves on our lead board of directors. And my personal favorite thing about Secretary King said he began his career as a high school social studies teacher, me too, and middle school principal. Once a teacher, always a teacher. So I'm excited about the gems tonight that we're gonna learn from these current political leaders and our burgeoning political leaders and excited for a really hopeful conversation. Fantastic, thank you so much, Tanya. Excited for tonight's conversation. Um, 
I'm going to say a couple words of introduction of Senator Booker and, and Congressman Jeffries, but then just want to dive into the discussion. Um, I, you know, Senator Booker probably requires no no introduction, but I will say he's he's a long been a hero of mine. Uh, started out running for the city council in Newark, ran for mayor of Newark. There's a fantastic documentary if you haven't seen it, Street Fight about his first run for mayor. Uh, and then he ran for mayor again, was elected mayor, served as mayor of Newark, helped really usher in a significant renaissance in uh, Newark, including around schools. And then uh, ran for the United States Senate, has served in the United States Senate from the state of New Jersey and ran for president of the United States. So I'm excited to hear lessons on politics from Senator Booker. We also will be joined by Representative Hakeem Jeffries, another hero of mine, um, especially as a, as a kid from Brooklyn. Uh, long admired Congressman Jeffries' career. Uh, he serves now as the, the House Democratic Caucus Chair, uh, in addition to representing Brooklyn in the House. And he has long been a champion of important issues of social justice, including uh, issues like policing reform that are very much in today's conversation. He also served as an impeachment manager in the, in the first impeachment of uh, the former president, uh, the former 45th president. Uh, so looking forward to hearing his insights and lessons for us on politics. So let me dive right into the conversation with you, Senator Booker. It's good to see you. It's great to be seen. It's uh... Really, uh, just uh, you are really uh, always been a joy to connect with. I'm just happy we're connecting in such a great forum. Yes, well, thank you for making time for Lee and 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 for all the folks who are joining us tonight. It'd be great to hear how you think about your role as an African American senator. As one of the few African Americans who's ever served in this in the Senate, how you think about what that means, and and how you think about what responsibility you have. Uh, to try to bring voices into the room in the United States Senate that haven't always been heard. Yeah, I, look, I ran um, knowing that I was driving to represent a lot of issues that just aren't brought up or brought up enough, I should probably say, because there's a lot of great champions of social justice, civil rights, uh, criminal justice reform. Um, but I got to the Senate and I was struck very uh, immediately that it was the least diverse place I had ever worked. And I knew that if you did not have diverse voices in the room, I remember ducking my head into the Judiciary Committee and I didn't see one uh, black or brown face uh, serving as a staffer in the room. And I, I went to Chuck Schumer with a great Senator Brian Schatz and just said, this has got to change. And we talked about the value of diversity and, and uh, Senator Schumer to his credit was thrilled to work on it with us. And we just created systems of accountability. The first thing he did was uh, uh, have every senator have to, Democratic senator, publish their diversity statistics. And he later told me he got a little pushback, but the reality is, is once the window was open and people could see, uh, it caused a lot of movement. And every year that we've done it, we've seen the number of women and minorities being hired, getting higher. So look, this has been the, the, the experience. One of the things that's marked my experience is just calling questions, challenging things. I remember when I got to the Senate, I looked at just pension funds, you know, there, as you know, New York to uh, New Jersey to Texas, red states even, 
have diverse managers managing this, this fund that creates generational wealth. And when I got into the federal government, I asked just the question, are any of the hundreds of billions of dollars in the largest pension funds in the country, if not the world, being managed by anybody diverse? Question answer was no. And so I've just found that as a sort of repeated part of my experience. And, you know, I'm not absent the realization that I'm only the fourth black person ever popularly elected to the United States Senate. Uh, the, the, there were some in reconstruction, amazing heroes in the reconstruction period, but it is still a very rare thing. And in addition to all of that, another thing I'm very much focused on uh, is seeing more United States senators, African-American United States senators be elected. And that means that we have to have candidate recruitment that really focuses on diversity ourselves at the, uh, what they call the DSCC, the Democratic Senate Coordinating Committee. You know, last year, we had a lot of conversation as a country about issues of racial justice. You, you were a leading voice in many of those conversations. But I worry that there was more maybe rhetoric than reality to some of that conversation around the country. You know, lots of schools, corporations, foundations put out statements of solidarity with Black Lives Matter, but then they haven't always changed their policies Kind of delivered on that rhetoric. Where do you think we are in terms of that national conversation about racial justice? How optimistic are you that we will see meaningful progress going forward? Look, I, it's been a long and painful road. I, I, I was really um, broken up after the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd because it just jolted me uh, in fact, I wrote an essay when I was at Stanford uh, and, you know, young, early 20s. And it was after the uh, killing of, uh, or the beating of Rodney King. And uh, when the verdict came out that they, that they were not going to be held accountable, I remember being in the streets marching, but I remember writing this essay for the Stanford newspaper uh, called Why, Have, Why I've Lost Control. And it was this, this 22 years of frustration as you know I was 63 I think in eighth grade and just seeing how the world treated me the fear of my black elders and I just remember this defiant feeling during those protests that we were going to end this that no generation of blacks would ever have to teach their children anymore uh, these lessons of survival uh, uh, about how your body will be focused on attacked uh, uh, injured killed um, because of who you are. And I think the difficult part for me was um, this last year was just this painful reality that I am teaching the next generation that, that we have not stopped that hor horrible tradition that goes back centuries in, in the United States. And so you asked me that question and I have to tell you, um, you know, I'm the only Senator, I believe, uh, that lives in a low-income uh, majority black and brown neighborhood. And I always say I got my BA from Stanford, but my PhD on the streets of Newark for, for people who taught me some of the most profound spiritual lessons. And I'll never forget uh, Miss Virginia Jones. I moved into these high-rise projects for eight years and Miss Virginia Jones was our tenant president whose son was murdered in the buildings in which I lived and in the 80s and I moved in in the, in the 90s. And I remember uh, just sort of asking her, sort of surprised, like, how do you stay in these buildings? I know, the, I know where she worked. I know she could have lived other places. And these were really, in the 90s, they were tough, tough places to live. 
Um, and she looked at me almost like she was kind of annoyed and amused by the question. And she's like, why am I still here? And we asked Mr. Why am I still in apartment five? Yes, Ms. Jones. Why am I still the tenant president since the buildings were built in 69? And I said, yes, Ms. Jones, why? And she goes, because I'm in charge of Homeland Security. And there's this defiance in her spirit that taught me, instructed me, healed me from some of my more painful experiences that she taught me really that hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word. And so I don't think we have any choice but to choose hope and be agents of hope. And you're right, this last year was, I call it the tilling of the soil of our souls. I think more Americans than ever before have had this sort of just brokenness. And I just am a big believer for America hasn't broken your heart. You don't love her enough. You're not paying attention with that love. And, and, and the question is now is, will seeds be planted that will grow a harvest? Because I have seen a lot of activity but I, I look around and, and, and wonder right now at this moment where policy-wise, we have an alignment between a Democratic president, Democratic House, Democratic Senate, will we be able to actually get real work done? $20 billion. We're about to do a $1.9 trillion bill, God willing. $20 billion could remove every lead service line from America, which most people don't know that there are 3,000 jurisdictions where children have more than more than twice the blood lead levels of Flint, Michigan. This disproportionately environmental injustices like this affect black children. Do we have the will to spend the finite amount of resources to stop that violence on the, on the developing brains of our children? I'll give you another example. Uh, I just introduced a bill with some amazing uh, Congress women in the house called the Momnibus, which is all about healing the uh, atrocious, tragic, wretched, levels of, of maternal mortality in our country, which is the worst of, in the, you know, of, of most developed nations. But for black women, it's even worse than for white women. And there are common sense things we can do. Most of the realities we experience right now are, are, are a, a result of, of policy choices or lack thereof. They're not some kind of destiny. And so I feel very impatient. I feel the sense of urgency. I don't know the answer to your question of whether we will go the right path but I know that I am hopeful. I am a prisoner of hope. And I am, I am determined to choose hope every day. And that keeps me going and energized and hopeful and loving uh, in this fight. I'm deeply grateful to you. And I know everyone on this call is ready to stand with you in, in that fight. I want to maybe take us back. So many of the Lee members are either thinking about running for office or newly elected to office. I want to take us back to when you were first making the decision to run for city council and then first making the decision to run for mayor. Tell us about those moments in your career path and what insights you might have for young people who are trying to decide, is that the right path for them? Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not native to Newark. And I'm a guy who grew up in very, you know, relatively affluent suburbs where my parents had to get a white couple to pose as them to break real estate steering. You know, it, violence broke out. I mean, my, my, but my family moved in and I was a baby and grew up in northern New Jersey, uh, northeast corner of the state. And, you know, I was raised by parents who were civil rights activists who just said, you know, my dad was like, boy, don't walk around this house like you hit a triple. Uh, you were born on third base and, and you, you can't ever pay back the sacrifices that were to take to get you here. 
but you've got to pay it forward. And so when I, you know, got two degrees out at Stanford, Oxford, Yale, my dad was just not impressed. He's like, boy, you got more degrees in the month of July, but you ain't hot. Life ain't about uh, the degrees you get, it's about the service you give. And my mom challenged me coming out of law school to say, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Go do that. And so I was inspired by a guy named Jeffrey Canada, who was my hero. And I went to Newark to start a nonprofit um, uh, based in the law. I was a lawyer, and, but I really was into community organizing. And you know, we started with a lot of momentum to, to take on those slumlords at these multi-family uh, buildings. And I thought I had my life. I had a prestigious you know, public interest fellowship paying me $30,000 a year and uh, helping me meet loan payments. And I just was, I was set. I knew what I was going to do. My dream was to be, start something like the Harlem Children's Zone. But my, I, I, I then did something that terrified me. Uh, the tenant leaders said that the biggest thing you could do for this community is help to take on City Hall. City Hall's corrupt. They were upset about a lot of those landlords who were big contributors to uh, uh, city council people or the, the particular council person they wanted me to run against. And I refused and I argued and I, I had to come back to what my mom said and, you know, and, and what Miss Jones said to me at the time. She just says, boy, why are you here? Are you here to be a lawyer? Are you here to do what the people need you to do? And so I did something that was, you know, in hindsight, just stupid. I gave up a job, lived off my credit card and my parents' grace to take on a machine that the joke was back then. People used to joke with me that city council people never lose in Newark, New Jersey. The only way they leave office is death or conviction and not conviction of your, uh, of your principles. The person I was running against was 40 years my senior, had been in office for a very long time, and I was running against an, a machine. It was, it was considered impossible to do. And it was just one of the scariest things I, I, I ever did. I still remember making that decision. I I, I've never broken out in hives in my life. I broke out in hives and had back spasms. I was just like eating myself up, but I did it. I jumped and and again, there's an old definition of faith that when you come to the end of all the light you know, and you're about to step into the darkness, faith is knowing one of two things will happen. Uh, you'll find solid ground underneath you or the universe will send you people who teach you how to fly. And the, the, the community leaders, you know, I can name so many of the, these elders, walked me through buildings, knocked on doors. They wouldn't open the door for me, but folks would open the door when they saw, you know, Miss Elaine Sewell, Miss uh, Yancey. I mean, and they would just say, this boy is gonna take care of us. You can trust him. And uh, it was, uh, we didn't win the first round, but we pushed the, the incumbent into a runoff. And then we won what uh, I remember some New Jersey paper saying was the biggest unexpected political upset. And, and, and so for me, I've stayed in that community. I, I still live right down the street from where I used to live in the high-rise projects. They're no longer there. In my Senate office is this big map of the, that we used in that election uh, for with all the districts on it. And I keep that there every single day. So I never forget why I ran for office because life is about purpose. It's not about position. And I want to stay loyal to the people who took a risk on me I had just lived in the city for a year, took a risk on me, believed in me enough, and then elected me. Uh, and I still think it was almost improbable victory. I mean, we used, had, you know, had all, every disadvantage, but we knocked on thousands and thousands of doors, um, giving out my personal phone number to everyone I met. Uh, when we realized um, 
there were communities of great need, we just decided to start bringing help even before we were elected, uh, you know, uh, expungement clinics, uh, and, and just tried to be, a, you know, for many, many months, just became part of the communities with community leaders. This was a really grassroots effort. And just to give you an ex example, my opponent got the same amount of votes he had gotten in all of his previous elections, but we ended up bringing out an entirely new electorate that was willing to take a risk on me and, and give me a chance. And that election, um, it is still so much a part of me. I feel this deep sense of, uh, of, of obligation and gratitude uh, to those communities. And it informs my work because when, you know, Hakeem Jeffries, whose face I see right now, he was one of the leaders, uh, incredible leaders on the House side that helped us get the First Step Act done. I always joke that when I can go back to my neighborhood and walk my streets, see, see people in the community, and they can come up to me and say, what you did uh, helped my family or what you did uh, uh, got my, my folk justice. I mean, that, that's a great measure for me of, am I staying true to the people who took me up and down high rise buildings through projects uh, um, to, to, to give a shot uh, to me uh, to, be, to be in public office. Thank you for sharing that, Senator. Welcome, Congressman. Good to see you. Good evening. Great to see you, Secretary King. Great to see you, Senator Booker. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to ask you ask you to, to answer two of the things that I, that I asked Senator Booker. One is uh, tell us about your first decision to, to run. What made you run for office? How did you how did you how did you weigh that weigh the choices there? What can we learn from from your decision to to go into public life in that way? Well, you know, I'd I'd gone to law school with the intention of trying to use my law degree in a manner that would somehow advance the cause of social, racial, and economic justice uh, for the communities in central Brooklyn and those like them across the city of New York and possibly the nation. Uh, but without being certain as to what exactly I wanted to do, whether that was individual representation, impact uh, litigation, some combination thereof, advocacy work. And so, you know, I, I started off my career, clerked for a judge, spent a few years uh, in the litigation department thinking about what I wanted to do next. And after a few years of practicing law there, decided that uh, I would run for office, a uh, seat in the New York State Assembly, hoping to use the skills and the training and the education that I had acquired to advocate on behalf of those communities in Central Brooklyn where I had grown up. And so I make this decision as a young lawyer with to run against a 20 year incumbent, uh, not unlike Corey's situation, uh, who was backed by the Albany political establishment, the uh, Brooklyn Democratic machine. And I'm just this young lawyer, have no name recognition, no money in the bank, no prior political involvement, but I make the decision that I'm gonna run to try to make things better in my little corner of the world uh, and so I go to visit a longtime community leader to ask for his advice on this possible run uh, and to hopefully earn his support. And so at the end of the conversation, I'll never forget it. He says, well, you know, you seem like you, you, you know, you got some ability, young man, but 
Uh, let me ask you a question. What, what exactly is your electoral base? You know, how many people can you count on to vote for you on election day? And you know, Corey, I hadn't really thought about that question. So um, trying to think quickly on my feet, like I was being uh, back in the law school classroom with the Socratic method, with all of the confidence that I could muster, I said, I can count on two people, myself and my wife. And then John, I thought about that answer for a moment. And I realized that even that calculation might be a little bit shaky. Because on any given night, if a brother wasn't doing the right thing at home, I could suffer a 50% erosion of my electoral base. Uh, but somehow, Corey, I held the coalition together. And you know that first race, I got more than 4,000 additional people to vote for us in an assembly race. We didn't win, unlike Corey, uh, but we did shock the establishment uh, got over 40% of the vote and it laid the foundation, you know, for me to ultimately be successful a few years later when the seat became vacant. And I decided to dive back in because there were people who took a risk on me. And I felt like I owed them the obligation to finish the job and then to go out and try to make things better. Uh, and to show that, you know, I guess our generation could, could be the type that um, made promises and then really sought to keep them, to be visible, to be active, to be engaged, and to drive legislation solely in the best interest of the people that uh, we represent. So it was a great honor. Hey, Congressman, uh, let, me, let me interrupt here because I want to get my question in before John does, because I think there are a lot of people listening to this. You and I both face like really tough losses. You you just admitted you ran and lost. And I think some people get discouraged and they're just done. Uh, but you said you you picked yourself up because of your, and it spoke to me because I could have gotten a job after my election from Newark to Norway, but a lot of people put their, their, their necks out for me, lost jobs over our race and stuff like that. But there's got to be another part of it for you, man. You had to have been faced discouragement. And yet, and yet there, you had to find some kind something inside yourself that made you pick up from that loss and try again. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's an interesting point, Corey. And not only did I lose once, I lost twice, right? So I, I, I came back the second time, two years later, but that was a redistricting year. And me being naive, right. didn't really know what I was getting myself into. And then I remember getting a call on Valentine's Day uh, that said, uh, Hakeem, the new lines have just come out and your house has been cut out of the district by a block. And I remember thinking to myself, now I knew Brooklyn politics could be rough, but cutting my house out of the district by a block, that move is gangster. Yes. And that's what we were up against in Brooklyn. And you were up against that in the extremes I ran anyway because I was determined not to allow that effort to gerrymander me out to stop me, but realized subsequently that in cutting out my house, they also cut out many of the election districts where I performed the best in the previous race. Hmm. 
And so I did reasonably well again, but lost. Now I'm knocked down on the ground twice, but a knockdown is different than a knockout, right? And that's the point. And I even drew a lot of inspiration, you know, from Corey and Corey's races, right? Because I remember watching that 2002 race and many of my friends, Rich Bury, others were involved. You know, I contributed what I could from Brooklyn, but it was an inspirational race when Corey ran in 2002, same year I lost the second time. And I remember saying, you know, at the end of the day, Corey losing, though we were all all in for him, is not the worst thing in the world. People said, why? I said, because we all believe that Corey will be a great leader, but he's had nothing but success, enviable success his entire professional journey. New Jersey football star, Stanford academic, All-American for all intents and purposes, Rose Scholar, Yale, runs his first race, wins, right? But this is a tough business that we're in now in the House, the Senate, dealing with all of these issues. We thought Corey would be a great leader, but he needed to test his mettle and face adversity. And sometimes the losses show more about a person than the wins. I mean, you, really, you and I both know this. You find, first of all, you, I, I advise everybody who's thinking about running for office or is, if you're gonna have a spectacular failure, have a documentary team there to capture it <laughs> because that uh, makes, makes for your most humiliating moments uh, captured on uh, a, a documentary team. But I, I think you're wa so wise in what you just said, man, because I, I think I've learned more from that loss, that 2002 loss, than I have from any other election. Uh, it really was uh, in terms of just rote politics. And I learned more about myself uh, in, my, in the darkness, facing defeat, facing uh, everything when it sort of all falls down all around you. So I, I, I appreciate that. If I can ask one other question, though, uh, um, it's, a, it's a different, it's a different challenge, I imagine, maybe I'm wrong, uh, running for office for a state level office uh, than, than running for a, a federal level to be, um, to be, a, to be a, a, a member of the house. And then I was wondering, you did something that is pretty impressive, should be pretty impressive to everybody. You then ran um, a race in the house to be in house leadership. And I'm wondering, could you just maybe talk about some of those, those differences uh, in that journey? Yeah, there's, there's no race that's more intense than a race with your colleagues. Yeah. And, you know, because you're often in a race with one or more people who are not just colleagues, but people you respect, look up to, are friends with. Uh, and so that's a tough situation. You know, I ran two house leadership races. My first race was for the position as one of the co-chairs of the communications committee. Uh, that was a six person race. The top three people prevailed. Uh, so that race, um, you know, doesn't have the same degree of pressure on your colleagues because there are at least three people that they can choose. Six of us ran um, and you've got to, you know, pick up the phone and and, and your colleagues are voters. You have to call everybody and make your case and ask for support. And, um, you know, and, and, and so it, it can be intense. And the race for caucus chair, 
uh, was even more intense because it, there were two Congressional Black Caucus members in the race, uh, myself and Barbara Lee, who's a progressive icon. Um, and uh, you know, we, we both ran a race that was super competitive. It was close at the end of the day. Uh, but she articulated the vision, I articulated the vision, uh, and we, we always express uh, respect for each other. Uh, but it's not an easy decision to make, to make the choice to step into a leadership race because, you know, unlike that context of challenging an incumbent uh, and generational dynamics or different politics that are at play, the need for change uh, in a in a leadership race, you know, it's 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 a family affair, and uh, I I often say that leadership races are like a knife fight in the phone booth. <laughs> it can get rough, uh, but thankfully, in the one that I ran, you know, we, you know, we resolved that, that no no matter what was going to happen, we were going to come together that evening. We all had dinner uh, that evening, and uh, and we've continued to work closely together. She's been gracious. I'd like to believe that you know I would have been just as gracious um, had the outcome not have been the same. I want to make sure we we get some of our earlier in their career elected officials into the into the conversation. So we have a question for you both from uh, Representative Reginald Bolding out of Arizona. Representative Bolding. First, uh, I want to say uh, thank you both for this conversation. I am I'm really uh, loving it and enjoying it, and it's bringing back memories um, uh, for myself personally. Uh, as was mentioned, my name is Reginald Bowden. I serve as our House Minority Leader in the Arizona State Legislature. Um, I, I do have a question uh, for you both. You know, what advice would you give us uh, Black candidates as we continue to grow in our own leadership? I yield to the. Corey, you want? Man, I yield to the man in leadership. I, well, no, <laughs> I, I, I yield to the the man in the House of Lords. You know. We... <laughs> um, look, I I think the uh, one piece of advice I I would I would give you is Hakeem's already articulated it. Um, you know, you 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 stand on a on a foundation on a base that you that got you to where you are, and never forsake that, never neglect it, and and you know so the more you honor that and serve it and, and, and stay close to those folks and show them that you're, you're, you know, show them your character. That, that, that's always been important to me. Um, and, and just having a strong foundation uh, uh, to serve on. And then, the, and then the second thing I would say for me, it's that, that same lesson I learned in 1998, I, I would just, I never want to become comfortable. I always want to continue to take risks and push myself and um, uh, 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 you know, if I ever become tired and just going through the motions, I want to get the hell out uh, uh, and let somebody else come in who's hungry every day. And so, I I I love this job that I have because it gives me a chance to number one respect the the foundation I stand on, but to try new things, to reach for new things, to stretch myself uh, as well. But I, I'll I'll I'm, I'm what about you, Hakeem? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think building upon exactly what Corey said, uh, you know, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants uh, wherever we are, right? Certainly here in Washington, you know, the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus 50 years ago, you know, 13 strong, now we're over 50 approaching 60. 
but you know, in Arizona and in all of the states, there were pioneers who paved the way for us. And I think one, always having respect and reverence for the trailblazers, genuine, authentic respect and reverence is important um, because they opened the door for us and, and we stand on their shoulders and have a lot to learn from them and hopefully uh, carrying the legacy forward. And then the other thing I'd just say from a leadership perspective, I found is that respect all your colleagues. And you know, the House is a different institution than the Senate. Corey and I joke about that a lot. Some of us believe that you know, the House is like public school and the Senate's like private school. And you know, it's a big diverse public school, right? It's a magnet school in the House, but it's big, it's rowdy, it's a lot going on. And you know, if you serve in the House, or in the legislative body, I embrace that. Embrace the personalities, embrace the enthusiasm, learn something from everyone. I'm sure in the same way that Corey navigates, you know, the dynamics of the Senate and someone on both sides of the aisle, everyone has something uh, that they can teach you, that you can learn from observations. Strengths, sometimes challenges and mistakes, uh, but embrace that and lean into it and I think that makes certainly makes you within the legislative body um, uh, the most effective member that you can be. Yes, a follow-up question to, to Representative Boulding's question. One of the things we hear a lot from Lee members is the, the daunting nature of fundraising, particularly if you don't have personal wealth and you aren't necessarily uh, spending a lot of time with wealthy people. What, what advice would you give as new candidates think about the challenge of, of fundraising? Yeah, fundraising is one of the tough aspects of this business. And Corey you know, is one of the best fundraisers, black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American, or otherwise. And so, you know, I'll, I'll defer to, to, to Corey and his success. But the one thing that I'd say is um, when you're starting out, you know, just think about your family, your friends, your classmates, your coworkers, um, the, and then build out those concentric circles. And, you know, you, you as the candidate or you as the elected official, you're going to be um, the person who can sell your story the best. And why investing in you, you know, makes sense. Uh, but, you know, look for those who can buy into that uh, and are willing to help out. And the, the, the most logical place to start is in those groups of people who know you the who know you the best. The one thing I will say about campaigning and fundraising uh, is that you know it's it's like a tale of two cities. There are going to be people who you thought would be there for you who are going to disappoint you. And so just recognize that and that's just the reality of the situation. But there will be so many others who you never thought would step up in the way that they do, whether that's handing out literature on the street corner, making phone calls for you or contributing. And that is one of the more gratifying aspects of campaigning and fundraising. Um, and that's just much like human nature. But Akimi, I know you've got some stories. Like I, I was out in California visiting a guy I'd known for years and so, I knew him, it wasn't a political relationship or somebody I met through my job. And he and I were just talking about Nancy Pelosi. 
Nancy came over to my house. She had gifts from my kids. She remembered their names. And he just started breaking all the things she he goes, Corey, before she could even ask, I had my checkbook open because she's just so good and making, and, and, and so what I'm just saying is like, you and I both know that there, first of all, that everything you said is right. Start, I, I did that, start in 1998. I sat down, who, who's my family? <laughs> who's my circle of friends? Who did I go to college with? All of that. But when you and I both look at the elites in this business, it's not because they started with a better hand of cards. They just created deeper, more substantive relationships. Now, I don't know how, if Nancy has that kind of um, genius mind or she has a great staff that says to her before she goes in, uh, or when she comes out, she goes, okay, this is the kid's names, this is their birthday, whatever. And, and she just keeps a great system. But I've learned that, and for me, it's, it's, you're more successful when you make people feel an authentic connection to you, the work, the mission is very important. And when you remember people, you and I both sat there on, on weekends and made calls to people for their birthdays uh, to give them updates, to find creative Zoom calls I've done during this with my, with my team, to find out, you know, who, these are my team that, that's part of my fundraising team that's interested in criminal justice reform. Here are some people that are interested in animal issues. It's something that's really important to me as, as a vegan. You know, those are the best kind of relationships I have for fundraising because they're people that it's that it, they're they're invested in me because of the mission that I'm on, and we've created a real substantive connection, and we put in the hours and hours of work to cultivate those relationships so that we can be successful. It's not fun, all, 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 all in terms of just like the work and the hours you have to put in. It takes sacrifice. But look, you're right. Yeah, thank you for talking about my athletic career. The older I get, better I was. Um, there were parts of it I hated, man. I didn't enjoy wind sprints. I didn't enjoy every hour I spent in the weight room. But if I wanted to be elite, and if I wanted to be excellent, I had to put in the time, put in the effort. Um, uh, so that's the first thing I want to say, which is you and I both know the best of the best in this. And they had this special way of making people feel special, making people feel connected, and having this real connection. The second thing I want to say is the other thing that you and I have learned, uh, I think, which has changed during the period from us starting the early early aughts till now, which is the power of online fundraising, you, you know, and and just the fact that I was blown away in my presidential run that the amount of money we were raising organically from hundreds and hundreds of thousands, over a million people in America, the small dollar contributions they were giving me were better than any of the donor big dollar donors that we had. It drove down the average contribution, and I still remember the conversation. I'm the fourth senator to do this, but. I sat with my team just looking at the understandable skepticism of um, a lot of senators. And I just said, look, we got to, we will stop. We're going to stop taking any kind of corporate money, any kind of uh, 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 C-suite money from pharma people, oil companies and the like. And even though we knew other competitors, especially Republican party, which you and I both know is so driven by some of these industries, and so what the, what the blessing has been for me is we wiped our hands of, of that kind of resources, but we have just found small dollar contributions being a whole new open opportunity for, for us. And I know you, you have a very strong base. You've built a very strong email list. So that's the second part of it is I've got a base of people that when I jump, uh, you know, there's hundreds of good friends that will write a check and start. But, but the other thing is that, that I've started making a name for myself using digital platforms and others 
that I really encourage people to do, to lean into social media, to celebrate how they're different, to show that you're independent from the money resources that often control politics. That's gonna make people wanna support you with $5, $10 and the like. So I, I would just give those two things. Have a core of people around you that aren't interested in you because they can get the sanitation contract but interested in you because they believe what you believe in criminal justice. They believe what you believe in education. They believe what you believe in healthcare. I, I, those that base, I will always love, but, but, but also start leaning into this idea that we can democratize campaigns and find ways uh, creatively using these platforms to begin to elevate uh, your mission, uh, which is to, to change politics as we know it, which, which I, I listen, Hakeem and I have a lot of personal conversations. Um, uh, that I know is, is the two of our mission. Thank you. I want to make sure we get uh, Sharice Davis in, who is a member of the Cobb County School Board, who has a question for you both. Yes, hello, thank you. I'm Sharice Davis on the Cobb County School Board. I've had this role for two years now, and I just wanted to tell you, thank you all for being here. Um, you're inspiring me, but also making me laugh a lot. So thank you for that, I appreciate it. So my question is about um, really representation and, and what you think it means for our nation if we do have more black leaders elected. And I would also add just not at, you know, at the federal level, but of course, all the way down to county and, and city races as well. Um, can I go first, Akeem? Yeah, no, Corey. Because I want to talk smack about you. So Akeem and I had a late night conversation the other night and, and my girlfriend who just moved into Newark, uh, but she's from Brooklyn, is like, I told her, I go, honey, I'm not gonna be free tonight until whatever time. And she's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm all with you. I need to, I need to talk to him. <laughs> and, and, and uh, uh, you know, he, she got on, uh, this is why I was laughing when he was saying about like him losing 50% of his support. Because my girlfriend, when she voted for me, became a New Jersey resident, she voted for marijuana first. She's like, let me vote for what's most important. <laughs> and, and then she voted for me. Look, I, I say this because I said to Hakeem the other day, and, and he and I were talking about, when you talk about representation, I'm, I'm so happy to see you because there have been a lot of Black, not a lot, there's been two elected Black male governors. There's been a uh, whole lot of black male senators of the 11, nine of them have been, since Reconstruction, have been men. Um, but I have a real concern that we aren't making enough pathways to black women uh, uh, in politics. And uh, that's why I'm grateful for you to ask this question about what representation means. I remember sending a picture to Kamala when she gave her acceptance speech. Uh, and it was of a friend of mine's daughter watching the TV as if she was just wrapped with like awe of what she was seeing. And I don't think that it's one of those pictures that you can't, you can't put it into words, what that representation means. And then when I begged Kamala to run for Senate, uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do everything I can uh, to get um, lots of, as many black women into the Senate as I can. And, I, she, she and I were, uh, had a funny conversation because she came to Washington, to, you know, we were, knew we were gonna connect uh, to, to deliver an imperative message to me and I wanted to give an imperative message to her. My imperative message was uh, run for the Senate, don't run for governor. Her imperative message was, dude, you need to get married. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I just remember telling her, and she was, that's how great of a sister she's been to me. But I just remember telling her what it meant, what as the only black person in the Democratic caucus and telling her 
more than me that her stepping onto the Senate floor would change the very um, energy spirit of the place because the place just hasn't seen people like her before. And so I, 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 representation matters. It's why I want more black staffers, uh, staffers of color. Uh, I, this is why I want, uh, you know, I, I work very hard on diversity on, on, in a lot of different fronts. In the Senate, we have a lot of uh, sort of, uh, not appointment power, but influence. We have to advise and consent the president in a lot of positions. So it, it is a very powerful thing. And what I appreciate about what you've heard of Keem, and this is, a, I'll pass it over to him. You know, you heard him bragging about the Congressional Black Caucus and how the size of the Congressional Black Caucus. And, and for me, by the way, uh, being one of the few senators I had this privilege to cross the Capitol and sit down at that table. Um, and by the way, it, it rotates who brings the food. And the only time I almost got, um, uh, only time I've ever been threatened by a, a, a congressperson ever in my life uh, uh, was when I brought vegan food as my meal. Uh, don't, don't roll up into a black gathering uh, of people who are of a generation above you with, with vegan meals. Uh, um, uh, I'm so hard, so happy Marsha Fudge is now in the, in the cabinet so she can't still threaten me. Um, but uh, but there's something powerful about when I sit around that table. For me, it's like, it's like food to my soul. Forget me not eating uh, the, the chicken, uh, but it, it is food to my soul. I know what it means to me to have that body in the Senate. And I also, last thing I'll say, to, as I pass to, to Akeem, there are questions called at that table that I don't hear around other places because the lived experience is different. So why McKinsey talks about why diverse teams are better, Harvard Business School, it is, it, is, it, it, it is making the Congress better, which is always what they've said about the Black Caucus being the conscience of the Congress. And uh, it, it just has, it, 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 I cannot, I wish I could better express to America what it means to have that kind of representational body uh, of, of Black folk up in there. Yeah, I think, you know, as Corey indicated, it was such an honor upon arriving in the Congress to be able to uh, become a part of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, which meets every Wednesday when we're able to meet in person, now virtual, but uh, as Corey indicated, you know, every Wednesday, 12 o'clock, and it's the best hour of the week. Uh, now, Corey's correct. Uh, he, he almost made a fatal mistake because it's the best hour of the week because of the company and the food. And that's the one week in Washington you get some soul food, some chicken, you know, some short ribs of beef, some macaroni and cheese, all the stuff that we know Corey's unhealthy. And we rotate each week, a different member provides the meal. And Corey showed up with some vegan food that nobody could figure out. <laughs> and we almost got run out of there. But I will say, Corey makes an important point that was also well received. And I've used this line, Corey, uh, because we all borrow from each other. But he said, you know, Black folks um, die more from drive-throughs than drive-bys. Die more from unhealthy eating and the complications and the diseases that flow from that than drive-by shootings. And so we all bring interesting perspectives anchored in our own life experiences and then pour into each other. And so the more of us, the better, both for improving our representation and also uh, for improving the representation 
representation and the sensitivities and the sensibilities of those of our colleagues who are not people of color uh, around us. And, and, and so, um, you know, representation clearly matters. It makes a difference. Uh, and we're better public servants because of the service that we are able to engage in bolstered by what we learn from each other. Uh, now, that is a great line that Corey shared. It got himself out of the situation, which was precarious for him. Uh, and Speaker Pelosi often says, I just say this to all of you, that you know we have a rule of thumb here. The first time you say something, you can say as Corey Booker said. The second time, as my good friend from the Senate said, the third time it's all yours. <laughs> so feel free to take that line as well. Thank you both. I know we, we can we continue this conversation all night. I wanna have us end on, on this note. Can you each give us a call to action, a charge in terms of what is necessary to continue to build the pipeline of black political leadership in this country? Well, I'll just quick, quickly say, and then yield to Corey to, to close us out, you know, run for something, do it for the right reasons because you really wanna make a difference. And then when you get the opportunity to get there, lean into making a difference. Corey indicated, you know, we had worked together on the first step back. We go back home and, you know, th th there are people whose lives were changed because of prison reform or sentencing reform. And the notion that there were people who looked like them within the halls of Congress thinking about them as they were behind bars incarcerated, trying to bring about a more just society. It's an enormous opportunity that we all have at every level of government and the needs are great. And it all starts, of course, in the electoral space by having to run for something. But as you run for something, understand uh, that you may not be successful the first time or you may not be successful as you take a step forward towards your ultimate destination, but perseverance is so important if you believe in the goal of being able to maximize your service. And if you continue to persevere, you'll get there. Churchill uh, once said that success is not final, failure is not fatal. All that matters is the courage to continue. You know, I say it a different way, as I mentioned, a knockdown is different than a knockout. That's the, that's the Brooklyn remix of Winston Churchill. But onward, learn from any challenges that you encounter. It'll make you stronger. Keep moving forward uh, and you, you'll reach your destination. And when you do, deliver for our communities. Two points, ego and grace. So the, the first is just, Something I think Hakeem does really well. It, this ain't about you at the end of the day. It really is not. It's it's about the it's about the mission. And you know we are what a privilege. I mean, I'm not called to die for for for, for this cause. I I'm, I never had to sit at a lunch counter knowing that I would get beaten. I mean, we, we sat at the table Hakeem and I with John Lewis, and I just I just don't know if I would have gone on a bus knowing it was going to get bombed or would have gone out to register people to vote like. Kim and I both have done knowing that it could end up in a in a river in Mississippi and having your life threatened. So what we're called to do is, you know, 
we're never called to that level of courage. So damn it, show some courage in what you're doing. You know, I, I just remember somebody who told me off on fundraising. I hated doing call time, whatever. And somebody says, this ain't about you. You know, you're, you're getting your own way. It's about your ego. I'm uncomfortable, whatever. This ain't about you. This is about, can you get more funding for sickle cell? Because it gets so much less funding than diseases that affect less people. This isn't about you. This is about will women still be strapped down uh, uh, or children when they're in, in prison when they're giving birth or kids being put into solitary confinement. So get out of your own way and, and, and just do it. You know, it, it, this country is in urgent need of, of, of more diverse people in office. So shut up and do what you have to do and do things that other people won't do. So you have victories other people don't get. Um, and then the second thing is the act of grace. I, I love one of my favorite things that Keen said tonight was a feeling that just like he, 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 he and I didn't compare notes, but this has happened to me. You know, you're about to run for election and Kakim, you know this, you've got 10 people making promises to you of things they're gonna do. And then you, they just, you know, people that you love, people you know, they're gonna say, oh, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna raise, and then it's crickets, especially if the heat gets on, if you're going up against the machine in Brooklyn or the machine in Newark, they just disappear. I had people, you know, not only tell me they couldn't help me anymore, but they couldn't even be seen with me in public. And, and, and so what I, I decided during when, going through the, that pain of disappointment that I was going to be always in the other camp of somebody that was always looking out for other people. Um, and if I ever said I was going to do something, I try to do what, again, Hakeem's really good at this, under promise, over deliver. So for yourself, get your own ego out of the way, run, go, but always help other candidates out, find them. I do things for the Democratic Legislative Committee. I do things for House members coming up. I do things for anything, anything I can do. If I can, it, 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 I wanna be one of those folks that helps other people up. And God forbid, if you get elected, commonly, I used to talk about this all the time. You think it's just, your job is just to, to represent and be there and all, no, your job, especially if you're one of the few diverse people there is to make sure you're not the last diverse person there and you do everything you can to, to widen the door, pave the road, put some street lights out, so other people can can make a way as well. Thank you both. I mean, this this was a phenomenal conversation and and um, very good food for the soul. Whether it is vegan food or, <laughs> or, or chicken and ribs, either way, this was this this was a wonderful conversation, and we are lucky to have you both in the in the roles that you're in. And uh, I know the country is better for having you in the roles that you're in. Thank you for your service to the country and for giving us some time tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Good you. Night. Well, all right. We've gone. We've we've gone a little over time, but I but I want to want to try to get uh, Representative Bolding and uh, School Board Member Davis back in for uh, a, a closing. Uh, question. So, and so I'd ask you just if, if each of you could both share uh, how Spark has been helpful to you and some advice you would have for other folks on this call who are, who are contemplating running for office. 
All right. Well, um, so I actually ran a couple years ago and pre-Spark, uh, but I will say that Spark is fitting the need for something that was surely one of the biggest challenges when I was running, and that's raising money. And it was mentioned earlier today, fundraising, um, particularly for smaller races, which sounds you know, opposite of what it should be because you don't necessarily need a whole lot of money to run for school board. Um, but it's not it's not top of mind for folks. And so uh, fundraising is an issue. And of course, um, when you are an only or, you know, one of a few, there's electability questions. And I think that Spark and Lee um, in particular, which is why I'm even here, the, the nudge that included an email, a phone call and someone at my dining room table um, to run, you know, we all we all need that support. And, and those are two issues that Spark is trying to um, to help people overcome. And it, it can make the difference between there being that representation that we're talking about or they're not. Um, because we don't come with the, you know, the, the war chest of, of resources and, you know, all of the experience to, to actually um, make it happen. So, um, yeah, Spark's doing great work. And my role now in, in Spark is just helping others to understand um, why they're needed to run. We, we've got to build the bench and, um, you know, they've, they've got support uh, waiting for them. And I think for me, uh, it really boiled down to three things. I would say uh, the network, the ideas, and, and then also the resources. And with regards to the network, I mean, we just saw it tonight, you know, to have amazing national leaders who, who truly care about educational equity, criminal justice reform, you know, health of our community to be part of this network really uh, is, is an inspiration and an inspired, and it inspired me. Um, and, and I think uh, another component with regards to the ideas that we have um, leaders across this country, no matter if they're well known, like uh, Senator Cory Booker or, or not, that we have ideas on how we can change our community and we're able to get that information from each other as, as former educators, as people who want to do more for our communities from unique backgrounds. That's extremely important. And I would say the resources, you know, I, I've been able to really take bold action on policy legislation because we don't have to go to those uh, institutional players who oftentimes are the contributors to elected officials and expect you to actually have the agenda that they want, but you can have the agenda that you want. That's the agenda for the people, the community, the kids that we're fighting for. And it's for those three reasons that I really say Spark has been incredible and I think will continue to inspire more people. Fantastic. Well, I thank you both for the great questions that you had and for sharing those insights and experiences and for your leadership and for your willingness to put your name on the ballot to run and then to try to help others to do the same. So thank you both. I want to uh, just share one reflection and turn it back to Tanya, which is um, I, I'm encouraged by tonight. <laughs> there were laughs. There were amazing nuggets. Um, I love that uh, Senator Booker and Congressman Jeffries just went there, just went there and touched how provocative it was that, you know, this conversation was about black political leadership and it was uh, three guys, <laughs> three guys talking and then uh, Reginald Bolding came in and there was one woman, Sharice uh, Davis. So I'm just glad that we have leaders who aren't afraid to name the thing in the room and who aren't afraid to actively do the work to address uh, representation in all of the ways that it challenges uh, leadership in our communities today. 
Uh, I heard something really good. I hope you all heard it too. Uh, Senator Booker said, hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word. Um, so we can hope for better. And that is something that we can actively do. And uh, thank you all for an amazing night. Thank you, Secretary King. Thank you, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. Thank you, Senator uh, Cory Booker, Representative Bolding, and school board member uh, Davis. This was an amazing conversation. And thank you all for joining us. Good night. Well, Taylor, what did you think of the Spark event? I like that the panelists brought up so many great quotes, several of which came from Cory Booker's mom, I might add. Yeah, she seems like a pretty smart lady. I really liked when she asked him, what would you do if you could not fail? And then followed it with, go do that. Ugh, so good. Yeah, thanks for the great advice, Mama Booker. I was also really impressed by the full range of leaders that were represented in that event. It really demonstrated the power of the Lee Network, connecting leaders of all types, senators, representatives, school board members. Yeah, I mean, the Lee Network is vast, and it shows that there's room for everyone to make a positive impact in their communities. And the Spark Leadership Program can actually help Lee members make that change possible by connecting candidates with the financial resources they need to run strong campaigns. That's right. Spark Leadership is all about breaking down those barriers for members who have dreams of running for office. If any of our listeners out there want to know more about Spark Leadership, check out sparkleaders.org or look out for a link in the episode's show notes at educationalequity.org slash leaders table. Like always, the show notes have all kinds of resources like inspiring quotes, transcripts, and links to all the leaders you heard here today. Yeah, and if you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to The Leader's Table on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from so that you don't have to miss out when new episodes are released. And while you're there, please give us a review. You can write to us at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Dr. King, Senator Booker, and Representative Jeffries for letting us listen in on their incredible conversation. And to Tanya St. Julian, Arian George, Ariadna Hinez, Stephen Cruz, and the rest of the Spark team for making this event possible. This episode is edited by Nolan Peters and written and produced by Graham Forden. Thanks for pulling up a seat at the leader's table. I'm Taylor Stewart. And I'm Cindy Centeno. Be well, stay safe out there, and until next time. <laughs>